The same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into the boat and sat in it, while others stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, As farmer went out to sow his seeds, as he was scattering the seeds, some fell along the path. And the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and withered because they had no root. Other seeds fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still, other seeds fell on good soil where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. This is the word of the Lord. If you don't know, Eli has uh, been interning with us this last year, and he's doing a fantastic job. Eli uh, graduated high school last spring and uh, attends the JUCO, and so he's, he's been a key part of our student ministry. And throughout this series, I want to highlight some students, some that have um, just, just recently graduated and, and are still helping, and then some that are still in our ministry, as we kind of gear our thoughts and our minds towards um, our CIY Sunday, our movie meal that will happen at the end of March. And so over these next six weeks, we'll be in a series called Broadcast, Broadcast. And when I say the word broadcast, what comes to mind? Radio? Who's, who's radio? Who's TV? TV broadcast. Anybody a podcaster in here? Listen to podcasts, okay? All three of us, that's awesome. I'm a, I'm a big podcaster. I, I love to listen to uh, podcasts. In fact, I'll often find myself uh, in rhythms and routines where I haven't listened to music for like a month. I'm like, whoa, wait, I love music. I should listen to music more because I, I just love to listen to other people think and expound upon ideas. One of my favorite podcasts is called No Dumb Questions. And um, no Dumb Questions, it's a couple of friends, both very intelligent and respected in their own, own fields, but they just sit down and they entertain a single idea. And I shared my favorite episode of that podcast with a friend, and that podcast episode was all about sleep paralysis. Anybody ever experienced sleep paralysis? Uh, basically, you wake up, but your body doesn't. And so I, I, my, I knew my friend had a long drive, and I was like, hey, man, this will keep you awake, okay? Uh, so I sent it to him, and, and no joke, a few hours later, he texts me. He said, I'm on the side of the road having a panic attack. I've experienced sleep paralysis before. Why did you send this to me? Uh, I'm a bad friend, apparently. Uh, but all different kinds of things come into our mind when we hear the word broadcast. But for a person in the first century... This idea of broadcasting was not technological, it was agricultural. And in fact, as a farmer would sow seed, as we've read about, he would carry a slinged bag over his shoulder and he would reach his hand into that bag and cast the seed out. It was literally a broadcasting. And so Jesus is the sower. He is the one who is broadcasting seed. His message of reconciliation in life is going out to everyone. Jesus is sowing seed, and Jesus is for everyone always. Jesus is the only one who can change anyone, and he's available to everyone. So Jesus, uh, Matthew is very intentional in the, in the language that he uses. It says that he went out from the house, and as the crowd gathered around him, he got into a boat, and he began to teach and it was custom at the time that the speaker would sit down, 
and that those listening would stand. So I'm going to grab a stool, and you guys are all going to, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm not Jesus. Um, it was customary at the time that, that you would stand and you would listen and that your attention was fixed on the speaker who was sitting. And so Jesus sat in the boat because the, the crowd was so vast around him. But those words that Matthew uses, he says Jesus went out as he begins Matthew chapter 13. And that's, that's exactly how Jesus begins the parable of the sower, as the sower went out or set out. The parable of the sower is fascinating because it is a parable about Jesus' parables. It is a uh, immediate commentary on what's happening in the moment. As the crowd gathers around him, Jesus is going to sow the seed of the kingdom. He's going to begin to broadcast his message. A, a parable is simply an earthly story that reveals a heavenly idea, and they are a hallmark of the ministry of Jesus. And we'll look at parable after parable throughout this series and hopefully receive this message that Jesus is broadcasting to us. A, a message that is meant for us to not just hear, but to receive. It's about salvation. It's about the work of God on our behalf. The God who loves us and gave himself for us. This message, which is meant for us, is intended to move us from where we find ourselves into followership of Jesus. See, these parables are not stories that we're simply meant to just glean morality from. We are meant to receive the message. Life in the kingdom is not about tweaks, but transformation. It's not slight alterations to the ways that we have been living. It is something totally other. It is a set-apart life, a radical difference in who you were and who you are becoming through Christ. And this word parable, literally, it, it means to lay alongside. Our word parallel is a a good contemporary word for it. Parable means to lay alongside, and so as Jesus is telling this story, the, the listener, not just the hearer, would understand that they're also laying their story alongside the parable and noticing the differences. And so as we hear the story of the sower, we are intended to lay ourselves bare and see who am I? Who am I in this story? What kind of soil exists in my own heart? And we lay ourselves alongside. We are not so much examining the story, but the story is examining us. It's exposing. It's making clear. But only those with ears to hear let themselves be examined. See, I, I think often in life we need some moments of brutal honesty, of extreme clarity, because we love to live lies. We love to pretend as if our, our great sin or our grievous errors or things that we just kind of allow to live in the background, that those things don't exist and we practice a very out of sight, out of mind way of faith. We need some brutal honesty and the parable of the sower is brutally honest. My daughter Campbell, many of you know her and many of you prayed for her this last week. Thank you so much for that. Um, she had a, a really high fever, and my whole family's in Colorado, and I'm not there, and man, that was just awful, and she's doing really well now, so thank you. So let me tell you about how honorary she is. Um, so Campbell, when she was about two years old, and, and I may have shared this with you before, but, but she, um, she would love when me or Bailey would actually climb into her crib <laughs> and snuggle her in bed. 
And so one night she was just awake. She's jumping up and down in the crib and she's yelling and screaming all different kinds of things. And it's about 1130 at night. And you know, there's, there's two different directions you can go as a parent. You can walk in the room and you can scold your child and you say, hey, it's time to be quiet and lay down and go to sleep. Or you can just, you know, extend some love and try to, try to love them back into sleep. And so I just leaned over to my wife and I said, hey, I'm, I'm going to go get in bed with her. She's going to love it. And so I, you know, I get out of bed, walk down the hallway. Here comes dad of the year. I know. And, and so I walk in the room and I'm like, man, I'm so, I'm such a good dad. And so I climb in the crib, and I lay down with her, and, and no joke, it's about two seconds, and she turns, and her face is this close to mine. I can feel her hot breath in my face, and she just said, Dad, will you please get out? <laughs> right? Brutal honesty. Brutal honesty. Okay, not effective. Didn't work. We need brutal honesty. We, we need to allow ourselves to be examined by the parables of Jesus. We need to see where we are in the story so that we can understand what following him will look like. So before we go any farther, let me just pray over our time this morning and ask God to fill us and be a part of this with us. Father God, it is, it is with all humility that we ask that you would make clear to us who we are. God, are we the soil of the path hardened against you? God, are we full of a layer of bedrock that will not allow your word to take root? Father, is our desire genuine but our devotion lacking? And there's things in this world that look like thorns and weeds that come and they choke the life out of what you would have for us. And Father, what I pray it's true of me and it's true of this church and the souls that are in this room, God, is that we would let the farmer do his work. That the soil could be made good, prepared and producing. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Like I said, the, the parable of the sower in many ways is a parable about parables. People have all different kinds of reactions to the stories that Jesus told, and like Dusty talked about, um, this is sort of a subversive way of communicating, because if Jesus just began with the message that he wanted to say, hey, you're awful, and you have no way to life outside of me, I'm God, and I'm going to set all things right, he, he just would have been killed. And so he begins his teaching ministry with this sort of subversive way of communicating. Some people were offended by the truth that Jesus told. Some people applauded him and appreciated him, but never applied what he taught. Some people pretended to love him, but never intended to live like him. Still others found within his stories a way of life more full and vibrant than anything they could have ever imagined. And this parable is a direct illustration of the entire teaching ministry of Jesus. He is like the prophets. In fact, much of his teaching ministry through the parables is referencing the prophets of Israel, Isaiah and Jeremiah, explaining that status in the world does not correlate to the kingdom. The way that we kind of architect and, and, and navigate our life based on who's in and who's out and who's worth it and who's not, that is not how Jesus sees things. And people have varying degrees of excitement about receiving this kingdom. The scholar 
Klein Snodgrass, that's, that's a name, uh, he, he says this, direct communication is important for conveying information, but learning is more than information intake, especially if the learner who already thinks they understand. People entrenched in their current understanding set their defenses against direct communication and end up confirming the message, excuse me, conforming the message into the channels of their current understanding of reality. But indirect communication finds a way in through the back window to confront a person's view of reality. A parable's ultimate aim is to draw in the listener, to awaken insight, to stimulate the conscience, to move to action. Jesus' parables are prophetic instruments used to get God's people to stop and reconsider their way of viewing reality and change their behavior. And so Jesus tells this parable of a man who set out to sow seed. And some seed falls along the the path that is hardened. It's been beat down by foot traffic and it is not capable of receiving the seed. Still others, he says, falls along a a part of the soil that, that has rock in it. And although it sprouts up and, and, and it looks like something promising for a moment, there's no depth to the soil and it will not be able to grow. And then he scatters some seed on a, a, a patch of soil that has thorns and weeds and, and, and it's prohibitive. It will not allow the seed to ultimately bloom. Still others falls on good soil. And then the disciples, they come to Jesus and they ask him, and this is what Dusty referenced earlier, Why do you speak in parables? Jesus said, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Then he quotes the prophet Isaiah. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has, been, has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes. Hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see. In your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see but did not see it. And to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and once, at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they fall away quickly. The seed falling among thorns refers to someone who hears the word. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. So let's begin with this first kind of soil that Jesus references. The path, the path, hardened soil. 
And sometimes this is misunderstood. Maybe you've read this text, and I, I've, I've been here before until recently as I began to study this once again. I've preached this several times, and, and I'm just beginning to see what I think Jesus is talking about. Like maybe you've deduced that the hardened path, the hardened hearts are those of people who are just totally unreceptive. Like this is an atheist, someone who wants nothing to do with God, an antagonist towards the faith. But contextually, I don't think this holds up. Because if, if we're to look at the life and the ministry of Jesus, and specifically at Matthew chapter 12, there's a repeated rebuke of one specific group of people. Do you know who they are? The religious people, the Pharisees, the, the people who are supposed to have it all together. And, and it's, not, it's not that they are uninterested in faith. It's they are totally convinced of their own self-righteousness. It's their pervasive self-righteousness that is repeatedly condemned by Jesus. They're resolute in their religion, and they miss the intention of God's good heart for his people through their interpretation and application of God's law. And this is why Jesus says, you will listen and listen, but you'll never understand. You'll look and look, but you'll never perceive, for people's hearts have grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing. They have shut their eyes, otherwise they might see, they might hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn back and I would heal them. Turn back. Jesus, as he's talking about those with hardened hearts, is talking about the self-righteous. The people who believe they've figured it all out. They have the right formula for faith and they can do just the right things in just the right order to set themselves right with God and achieve salvation. This is the religious crowd in Jesus' day. This is the religious crowd in our day. And Jesus will draw our attention to the fact that there's a difference between hearing and listening. Parents in the room, can I get an amen? There's a difference in the room between hearing and listening. I saw this meme online the other day. It said this, my wife just stopped and said, you weren't even listening, were you? And I thought to myself, that is a strange way to start a conversation. You'll get there, right? Some of you are listening just now. When I was a kid, man, my brothers and I we would be playing something, and almost always the difference between hearing and listening would manifest when we were playing video games. We got some limited windows of video game time, right? But th nothing, nothing robs the ability to listen to the words of a parent like a screen. And so there my brothers and I are playing on our PlayStation 2, you know, Tony Hawk Pro Skater or something like that. And we're, we're playing, and, and mom would yell at us, hey, it's time for dinner, you need to turn the PlayStation off. And of course, you could hear, it was sort of the, the Charlie Brown, wah, 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 right? We're not listening to that, right? We're, we're gaming, mom. And then my parents, and, and maybe you've employed this tactic as a parent, they just shout something interesting, ice cream! And we're like, what, right? Where's, there's ice cream, I'll, I'll have ice cream, please, right? There's a difference between listening and hearing. And, and here's the thing, we want to soften the message of Jesus. Like we want to take the words of Jesus, this, this good teacher, this great moral guy, and his lessons and good things, and, and, and we want to take his message and soften it to the point where we can kind of mold it around our current existence. Like we don't really want to alter very much about our lives, we just want to take what Jesus has and kind of spread it over the skeleton we've already created. 
We want to soften the message of Jesus, but Jesus wants to soften our hearts so that we can receive his message. Jesus and his teaching are radical. They are countercultural, upside down. So God, forgive us for when we water down your word to make it more palatable. See, the hardened hearts of the Pharisees came not from an opposition towards faith, but a certainty of their salvation apart from Jesus. Nothing will set us so far away from God as self-righteousness. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And it is this kind of certainty that should give us caution. Who, who are we to be called righteous because we are nothing if not for Christ? You know, if there was a, a television ad to talk about self-righteousness, it might go something like this. Doctors recommend self-righteousness as an effective treatment against the kingdom of God. Anxious about becoming a sold-out follower of Jesus, radically reorganizing your life around the values of his kingdom? Talk to your doctor about self-righteousness. Side effects include laziness, obstinance, pride, boasting, prayer in public, manipulative donations, and a general know-it-allness. That's in the sermon notes if you need to reference that again. Certainty is the death of authenticity and vulnerability. The self-righteous and hard-hearted person builds for themselves a faith, a faith framework that is controllable. I know all the right buttons and levers to push. I know the right prayers to pray and the right Bible reading to do. I, I know the right amount of money to give. I know, like, you just have it all predicted and planned out. I mean, the, the self-righteous crowd has really made themselves known recently. Whether it's through the, the, the political landscape through the last few years, or maybe even just recently this last week, maybe you noticed a few Super Bowl commercials that spoke about Jesus. There's a whole campaign called He Gets Us, where several radically generous donors put tens of millions of dollars behind this singular idea. What if we told people about Jesus? Crazy, I know. And the backlash that those ads received was astounding. People coming out of the woodwork to say things like, well, shouldn't that money have gone to other things? And it's very similar to this encounter that Jesus has with a young woman who comes and brings a very expensive jar of perfume and breaks it over the feet of Jesus, if nothing than just to worship him. And Judas, who holds the purse strings for the group, says something similar to everyone Who's, who was coming out of the woodwork to complain about this campaign set. Judas said, shouldn't this money have gone to do something else? Friends, there, there is no more important thing in the world than broadcasting the message of Jesus. There, there is nothing more valuable than people hearing his name and calling on his name. And Father, forgive us for when we think we know better than you. The second kind of soil that Jesus talks about is soil that is held back, not just because there are some rocks in it, but because literally there's a layer of bedrock beneath the soil. The soil can only go so far. It's, it's like if we just spread a few inches of topsoil over the sidewalk just outside of our building. Something might sprout for a moment, but it cannot continue life because there is no more life to be found. These are literally shallow people. 
And this kind of laissez affair attitude towards faith and life is common. And there are some key characteristics of the shallow person. Faith only shows up when it's convenient. Giving is never sacrificial. They fit faith into a schedule determined by other pursuits. Well, it makes sense for us to do that this week, but not next week. They laugh off choices or habits inconsistent with the kingdom. And friends, the seed doesn't stand a chance. It has no opportunity to root because it is prohibited. It's held back from going further. It's too shallow. The idea of half-hearted is a great term when considering the shallow soil. Jesus, you can have this much, but you can't touch this over here. No, no, that's my career. You can't mess with that. No, this is my money. I'll I'll throw in some extra when it's possible. My my kids need to meet my definition of success. No, I could could never forgive what that person has done to me. I'll, I'll do all this other stuff over here, but I won't forgive that person. Jesus says the shallow soil, although it looks promising for a moment, cannot produce what he's hoped it would. Then he talks about soil that is filled with thorns, hindrances. I call this the sidetracked soil. Because the desire is genuine, but the devotion is lacking. And Jesus says this, he he lists these two things, that the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth creep in and choke the soil. The worries of life, things like our status in the world or our standing with people who don't claim Jesus. Like we care way too much what people who are not interested in Jesus think about us. Why? I heard a really good quote this last week. Not everyone who is in your circle is in your corner. Like there are people in your life speaking into your life, dictating your decisions because you care too deeply about what they think rather than trusting in Jesus. The deceitfulness of wealth. For these people, money is their master. This is what robs them of worshiping God. They serve the God of money. They believe things that, like, a better future can be found through financial gain, and and problems are solved when, when dollars are put in the bank, and they live life for grinding for more, and they sacrifice opportunities with family and church and community and friends who are pursuing Jesus so that they can get more and have bigger and better. Ultimately, those who are sidetracked settle for the immediate rather than pursuing the ultimate. Friends, life with Jesus doesn't just happen. Like by all accounts, by this parable, 75% of us in the room, if we were just going strictly on percentages, 75% of us in the room We're not initiated yet. Life with Jesus doesn't just happen. You don't just fall into it and everything is magically better. I think I've told you guys about this before, but one of the hallmarks of youth ministry with Joel is Nerf. It's it's a big part of my ministry. And so 
Uh, we, we played a lot of Nerf with our youth group in Dallas, and, and we had this big old cavernous uh, worship center, and there's a baptistry all the way up at the top, and there's stairs on both sides. And so we'd, we'd turn off all the lights in the church building and just, and just go to town, and, and it was awesome, and the kids loved it. And we had a lot of kids come for the first time because we were turning off lights and, and shooting Nerf guns in the church building. In fact, I got, here's a, let me take that story, set it over here, here's a little aside. Uh, last week, I asked my daughter Campbell, I said, hey, who, what are we going to do today? Um, she said, we're going to watch the Super Bowl. And she goes, Dad, we should get all the Nerf guns from your office so we can shoot the Eagles. That's what she said, okay? All right, back to the story. So we, we played a lot of Nerf, and we... We had a student who showed up for the first time, and uh, it was called Tommy. And so, so Tommy was there, and he was running around. And he was playing Nerf with us, and and I'm hiding out in the worship center in a dark corner, and I hear footsteps up the stairs, and then I hear no footsteps, and and then I hear a big splash. And so I'm thinking, wow, God. This is amazing. And so I, I run up, and there's Tommy in the baptistry, because he has no idea uh, there's a baptistry. And, and so I, I, I get in there to help him out, and as I'm doing I say, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? And, and we baptize the kid because of nerf. But here's, like, here's the point. That do, that's not how this works. It's not like we just run around church long enough, and all of a sudden we fall into salvation because we've been around, and it's kind of rubbed off on us. That's not how it works. We don't just fall into the kingdom because we've done the right things long enough. We access the kingdom because we have had everything in our hearts that could harden them against God, could hold them back or hinder them. We've had all of it stripped away. We've been prepared to receive the message of Jesus, and now it's changed everything. Jesus says that there's good soil. It's hospitable, and this soil is surrendered. And, and here are the hallmarks of surrendered soil. It is prepared and producing. Prepared and producing. It's ready to receive, and then it's ready to respond based on what it has received. And for the good soil, Jesus isn't first. It's not like, hey, if we're listing things that are important in your life, I'll put Jesus at the top of the list, and then you know, there's some other things. No, don't put Jesus first. Jesus is everything. Jesus is at the center. If something doesn't serve Jesus and his kingdom and his way of life, then I strip it away. Hallmarks of good soil. I've ruled out these behaviors, activities, or pursuits, not because I'm better than anyone, but because I'm, I'm called to a kingdom purpose. It might look something like this. Man, I'd love for my son to play on that team, but all the games are on Sunday mornings. And I love my church, and I believe I'm called to serve my church and expand God's kingdom. Man, thanks for the invite. I can't do Thursday nights because we host a small group in our home where we talk about Jesus, and we listen in to what it would look like to build our lives around him. These are lives that are radically reoriented around kingdom and its values. God being worshiped, Jesus being preached, disciples made, the kingdom advanced. Some of you heard Dusty's words earlier about being initiated, and I'll be honest, I was one for three on, on those initiations, but I, I got the spiritual one, so I'm feeling okay. Uh, Asbury University 
in Kentucky. Some of you know this story, some of you don't, but on Wednesday, February 8th, so this is a week and a half ago, they began their chapel service like any other normal chapel service, a weekly one-hour service where their student body would gather and they'd just worship and receive God's word and then they'd go back to class and about their way of life. And on this particular day, a simple message was preached inviting people to respond to Jesus, repent of their sin, and live in God's spirit. And friends, this is one of the more remarkable things um, that I've seen in the realm of the movement of God's spirit in, in recent history, because the chapel service has not ended. They're going on hour 236 of continuous worship, sharing of God's word, prayer, and repentance. And I'll, I'll remind you, out of those 236 hours, one of them was planned. Everything else has just been, Jesus, have your way. Here is sin that exists in my heart, and I don't want it to be there anymore. Here is truth that comes from your word. Here's a testimony of God's goodness. Here's a song that has been placed on my heart in this moment. I need to sing it because, Jesus, you are worthy and have your way. And this, is, this has gone from just a moment to a movement. And people from all over the country have been showing up at Asbury to worship and to pray and to share God's word with believers. I, I have friends who have been there, and they're, they're posting their stories and, and sharing pictures about all different kinds of things, and then that has actually spread. There are two more universities, colleges in the area that are now experiencing a similar kind of thing, and it's been trending on Twitter and all over social media, hashtag Asbury Revival. And here's the deal. It doesn't fit into a lot of people's boxes. This is a Methodist university. And the Pentecostals are not happy about that. <laughs> Revival's happening there? What, how can that happen? No, revival has to look like this, and yet here's God operating how he would choose to. No big lights and sounds, nothing prepared, just people sharing a moment after moment after moment with one another, reading God's word, repenting of their sin, rejoicing over the goodness of God through song and prayer. Revival is happening. This is a quote from Robert Farrar Capone, which is an all-time name. He says this about the parables. For Jesus, the parables were not used to explain things to people's satisfaction, but rather to call into question all their previous explanations and understandings, far from being illustrations that illuminate what people hadn't yet figured out. The parables are designed to pop every circuit breaker in the mind. If you mentioned Messiah, then the disciples pictured an armed king on horseback. If you mentioned forgiveness, then they start setting up rules about when it should run out. From Jesus' point of view, the sooner their misguided minds had the props knocked out from under them, the better. After all their hammering about how God should or should not run his own operation, Getting people to just stand there with their eyes popped open and their mouths shut would be a giant step forward. See, we want to soften Jesus' message. and We want to bend it around the things that we've said, these are non-negotiable, Jesus, you can have everything else, but these, but these stay here. And we want to make Jesus fit our way of life. But Jesus wants to soften our hearts. 
True revival comes when we simply desire Him. Not what He can do for us, but just desiring Him. When our hearts have a singular desire for Christ to fill it. The path, the soil with bedrock, the soil with thorns, all of these have been co-opted by other circumstances. They brought in another system of value that they think is God's kingdom, and these have merged God's kingdom with the human or shame honor status game. It's been co-opted. So, so what does this mean? Does this mean that 75% of us are just like we're out of luck? <laughs> no, the, the, the word that is often used when Jesus talks about parables and sort of the, the mysterious nature of them, the Greek word is mysterion, and it sounds like our English word mystery, but it actually means nearly the opposite. It actually is something like an open secret, like hiding in plain sight. There, there, is no, there, there is no maneuvering of the truth of Jesus to try to make it make sense just right. It's just simple, like Jesus is saying exactly what he wants us to hear. Are you listening? You, your money should serve God, full stop. Your family should serve God, full stop. Your life should be about Jesus. And Jesus is extremely clear about what he's saying. You should change everything about your life until it serves a singular purpose, and that's the advancement of God's kingdom. And those who have ears to hear will listen and understand. Those statements aren't hard to listen to. We just don't want to receive them all the time. But did the good soil never need anything done to it? No, there's a lot of farmers in this room. Soil has to be worked. Soil has to be watered. Soil has to be weeded out so that it can be ready to receive. And so the invitation this morning is not, how dare you, shame on you, you should do better, you should work the, the, the ground of your heart until it's ready. No, the invitation is, hey, the farmer's in the room today, and he can change anyone. In fact, Jesus is the only one who can change anyone, and he's available to everyone. And if you'll hand, hand the soil over to the farmer, he will make it good. He, he will bring his spirit into your life. He will radically reorient everything about who you are so that you can have the real and true and lasting and full life he's always desired for us. So will you let the farmer do his work? He will work the ground. He, he will water the soil. He will weed out all of the distractions and things that could co-opt his message. Do you have ears to hear? If you'll listen, Jesus will invade and he'll do the work. So man, if that's you today and, and you're ready to surrender that soil of your heart to Jesus and say, I want nothing else but him. I'm here. And man, what I hope and pray is true is that revival would not just be something that's talked about somewhere else in our world, but that revival would happen here in the community of Fort Scott, and it would happen because there are people in this room who are totally surrendered, set apart, and sold out to the way of Jesus. Let's worship.